Rabbit's talk is on uh, a general theme of inauthenticity and authenticity. I'm going to be speaking from a perspective of two of my favorite uh, 20th century psychologists, Donald Winnicott, Heinz Kohut, and I'm also then going to be bringing in some Buddhist perspectives and how we address the issues that I've introduced. And then we'll see where George takes it from there. Um, okay. So from the earliest infancy, a core instinct we have is connection. We seek connection with our caretakers. We're communicating not through words in the first years of our lives, but through emotional expressions, gestures, body movements, cries. We're seeking a bunch of different needs are asking to be met. We're seeking, first and foremost, security, the sense that somebody is there to protect us, to keep us warm, to feed us. We're all born, and from one perspective, very prematurely. It takes <laughs> a very long time for a human being to be self-sustaining in any meaningful definition of that phrase. So we're seeking security, without which we would perish. We're seeking emotional tolerance, which means someone who tolerates the way we express our needs through cries, through gestures, facial expressions, uh, movements. We're seeking mirroring, which means someone who not only can read our emotions, but signal them back in a way that lets us know they understand how we feel. They know that we're frightened or scared or uh, hungry or overwhelmed or whatever we're feeling, and that they, the caretaker, can help us find some stability. We're also seeking, eventually, these needs become more refined, and we're seeking things like role models, people who show us that we can accomplish and do things in the world, and a sense of affiliation, which means feeling that we're part of a family or a group of people, not just something that is being taken care of, but someone who has something of value. At very essence, the infant is seeking what could be called emotion regulation, which means we have needs that are expressed in emotions, and these emotions do not, are not capable, especially in infancy, of regulating themselves until they're met, received, greeted, and mirrored back by a caretaker. Now, if the mother is what one of my heroes, Kohut, calls a safe object, and that's the driest title you could... Mother, are you providing me with a safe object? I do hope so, my child. <laughs> if a mother is a safe object, she can read these requests, bids for connection, attention, emotional tolerance, and mirroring. And if she does, and if she can develop a pattern of establishing that the child is being seen and witnessed, uh, the child begins to feel a sense of confidence in the world that has a feeling of there being what's called a secure base in the world, a caretaker that it can return to. So the safe object, the mother 
creates a safe, secure base. And from that, the child can confidently, when it's amongst other children or in strange environments, crawl off and play without needing to be too preoccupied, worrying, is my mother monitoring me, noticing what I'm doing, or the, the father, or whoever is the caretaker. The child who has a secure base grows up with an underlying view that its needs will be met by the surrounding world. It feels a sense of confidence that it can ask for help from other people without being rejected. It can express authentic emotions and behaviors. Now, what are authentic emotions that a child with a secure base can express? Spontaneous. They don't, they're not planned, they're not, they arise often without any preparation. They're unprepared. Very often, spontaneous, authentic emotions do not make sense to the adults. They might be untidy. Sometimes a child can suddenly be frightened and cry out, or can become emotional, can become uh, filled with sadness, disappointment. And still, the secure base, the safe object, the good enough, in Winnicott's words, mother, meets these emotions and doesn't neglect, reject, or shame the child. She's capable of creating an encouraging, uh, holding environment where the child can express a wide vocabulary of emotions. Sometimes it may not get what it wants, the infant, but it will always have its, at least its emotions be met and understood, or at least most of the time. And when the mother's attention or focus is pulled away, which will happen, no mother or caretaker can always provide constant constant attunement, but the mother will predictably return and repair her attention to the infant. So, these spontaneous emotions arise and swell in the body, and to be comfortable expressing and feeling into these emotions we really need to feel that there will be someone there who will make it okay. Now, let's put aside the secure base mother, the good enough mother, and talk about uh, some other types of caretaking that occur. If the caretaker fails to meet the needs and gestures, and of course we should think of this as a sliding scale, there's a a huge degree between the, uh, the good enough mother and complete uh, uh, abandoning, shut down, narcissistic, uh, or violent parent. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of varying degrees. But if the mother fails to meet some of the emotional states or needs of the child, the child will grow up then to believe that its needs may not be met by the world. Perfectly normal needs for reassurance, for security, for emotional tolerance while the infant feels sad or lonely or uh, agitated will be acquired or or sought by roundabout means, the child will no longer feel confident in expressing emotions that are neglected, rejected, or shamed by the caretaker. The child will replace those emotions with other emotional or performance or behaviors that will win 
attention from the mother. So let's examine this. Suppose a caretaker, a father or a mother, cannot tolerate frustration in the child or sudden cries. The child may suddenly choose to develop other performances to get its need met. It may, one, shut down, become quiet, hide, or it may become very preoccupied and needy and cling physically to the caretaker, demanding attention. We develop a whole vocabulary of counterfeit behaviors and strategies to get our needs met. And some needs, we learn to not even ask for help. Some of us, if we naturally express feminine behaviors when masculine behaviors are ex ex you know, expected from our caretakers of the world around us, we'll conceal those spontaneous behaviors and try to act in a way that people expect, and vice versa. My father expected a version of macho, outdoorsman, masculine confidence. He demanded it and browbeated every sense of weakness or the feminine or the scared until I learned whenever I was around other men to either pre pre present a false bravado that was utterly hollow or to hide away from groups of men. You could tell how confident I was in the uh, gym showers. <laughs> Fucking hated that shit. Uh, <laughs> so, um, just to repeat, we'll squelch authentic needs and emotions. Fear, maybe. Squelch, sadness, frustration. And we'll perform what gets us attention. Uh, Jim Carrey said, I believe it was Jim Carrey, said that he became funny in that way because it was the only way he could get attention in his family. But what happens when these inauthentic strategies succeed, when the false performative behaviors that are not authentic, not spontaneous, that we've developed just to get attention when our authentic emotions couldn't. What happens when we succeed? Well, there's a whole world of lawyers and businessmen and successful people who spend their lives achieving because that was the only way they could get secure connection with their caretakers. And then they wind up successful businesswomen, businessmen with all the hallmarks of success, a big house, a big car, a big boat, big shoes, big shoes, <laughs> a big nose. You can tell how much I know about this. Anyway, <laughs> but when you chase the performative, the inauthentic, no matter how successful one becomes, it feels hollow and empty. Behind the mask that we've learned to put on to win approval, what the Buddha called the eight worldly wins, the seeking of approval, trying to fill that emptiness, that lack of a secure base that we never got trying to fill the space where a, what Coet calls a safe object is not there, when there's no uh, internalized voice of the caretaker or feeling of being good enough that was implanted during childhood, there's this emptiness, and no matter how much approval and fame and money and success we get, we are still 
hollow, empty. And yet, ironically, even despite this hollowness, this emptiness, the person who chases approval and fame because it was the only way they could feel paid attention to, they will fiercely defend and insist that everybody recognize their accomplishments. Why? Because they have given up their authentic needs, squelched their authentic needs. They have given up everything a human being can give up, chasing love in places that are not authentic or real. What D.W. Winnicott called the false self, all these inauthentic behaviors and accomplishments eventually, sadly, become what's called introjected. They become literally internalized until eventually it becomes very hard for people to discern the difference between an authentic need and one that has been rehearsed and repeated again and again and again. Eventually, the behaviors merge. The real need for uh, love can be squelched. Very often, people who don't have a um, secure base in childhood will avoid intimacy because it reminds them of the lack of attachment that they never, the lack of attachment, the, the fact that they never received the emotional tolerance, the emotional regulation that they so needed as, as children. And yet, it's easy enough to say, well, when somebody becomes rich and famous and they've achieved all those inauthentic needs for attention, why don't they just then, you know, start dancing? <laughs> Why don't they then throw away their business and tell all those false, hollow relationships to go fuck themselves? And I'm coming out of the closet, and I'm going to act in a real way. Well, to risk the authentic risks annihilation. Because at one point in our life, when we ask to be seen and witnessed, to be loved, we were rejected, neglected. And so that same feeling of what happens when we express ourselves as children remains through our entire life. And we feel even when we can demand that people acknowledge our true, authentic feelings, it, became, it can feel like an insurmountable risk. It can feel like we're risking death. <coughs> Very often, people who are trapped in a false self will wind up in a masochistic repetition. They'll keep on searching out partners in life, romantic partners, who are very suspiciously similar to the caretaker that neglected them in those crucial formative years. Like a moth to a flame, as I like to put, we can burn ourselves seeking adults who are sadistic, withdrawn, neglectful, uncaring, because we feel now as an adult, maybe I can rewrite my childhood and get those needs met. But of course, because we are seeking orange juice from the hardware store. <laughs> we'll never get that orange juice. Orange juice being needs, emotional tolerance, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Sometimes you got to spell out these things. <laughs> now, so there's two ways people with a false self can wind up primarily. Some will fear abandonment and thus become very, very preoccupied, and, and, and their insecurity will make them seek constant uh, attention. These people will often 
trade their need for intimacy, they'll trade sex for it as a way to get attention. Because it's the only way they know to get that feeling of being seen, touched, held, comforted. And then they'll wind up perennially disappointed when the sex does not translate to the secure, emotional, deep intimacy that they really deeply crave. On the other hand, some people fear engulfment. It's their strategy to never risk being intimate. And so they avoid getting too close. They learn how to just keep people at a distance, interested, but they don't really ever risk anything intimate. These could be viewed as avoidant people. In either case, whether somebody is avoidant or fearing engulfment or fearing abandonment and preoccupied and clinging, a false body develops. Now, what do I mean by a false body? Our normal, spontaneous, authentic feelings that are still there, the needs for love, the needs for being cared for, the needs for being seen, will be experienced in the body, very often in core areas that keep us alive, the abdomen and the chest, the vagal vagus nerve in the front of the body. And so when we experience those needs arising, we will then push them back down because the allowing ourselves to feel those authentic needs for truly being loved is too frightening for somebody who had a uh, neglecting or inconsistent caretaker. The body becomes a battleground of feelings that want to, be arrive, want to arrive and the mind which pushes them back down and it can result in a perennially tight abdomen or in a chest that always feels hollow or a throat that feels constricted and strangled or a jaw that's locked or forehead that's always tight. It's an expression of the battle between authentic needs trying to be trying to be witnessed by the mind, trying to be accepted, trying to be expressed to others, and the fearful mind that thinks, oh no, if I express these needs, I'll once again get rejected, I'll once again feel like I'm going to die, I'll once again feel like that infant whose mother could not meet its needs, and it gets pushed down, and the body becomes this battleground of tension. We close off to the body, and we seek distractions. That becomes the chief process of the false self, closing, tightening, and turning away seeking distractions so that we don't have to acknowledge those deep needs. Okay, well, that's all the bad news. <laughs> so now, uh, finally, for the last five minutes, and I'm going to turn it over to George, um, in relational work, the work that we do, the work that therapists do, the work that... Uh, in any kind of healing occurs, uh, an encouraging, emotionally tolerant and secure environment is created where somebody who's experienced any degree of emotional intolerance or any degree of emotional rejection can learn to once again safely, tentatively express authentic, natural, spontaneous needs. I'm going to read you a quote by a rather obscure, although he was wonderful, psychotherapist named Harry Guntrip. He wrote a book called Psychoanalytic Theory, Therapy, and Self, and I'm the kind of complete nerd that actually has books with that title. 
was written in 1971. And Gunfrit wrote, therapy, and by therapy you can also place any kind of reassuring core friendship, any work that you do that's healing, is the provision of genuine, reliable understanding and respect. It's a caring, personal relationship in which a human being whose true self has been crushed by the manipulative techniques of caretakers who only wanted their child not to be a nuisance. Isn't that wonderful? (laughs) Read that again. Whose true self has been crushed by the manipulative techniques of caretakers who only wanted their child not to be a nuisance to them. The adult child can begin to feel his own feelings and think his own spontaneous thoughts and find himself to be real. That's a wonderful... The first time I read that, I almost broke out weeping. It was really uh, moving. So, a safe base is a holding environment where we have the opportunity to express those neglected needs and to begin to develop uh, or internalize a safe object. So, if you're working with George, George would be... Your safe object. Be a safe object, George. There he is. Safe object. And your job over the course of the mentoring would be to internalize George, to introject your safe object so that that emptiness or hollowness that you perhaps didn't get fully filled in early life would be filled with a bearded adult man. Think Alien 1. All right. Uh, You might pop out and run around me. All right. So that's introjecting the safe object. You find somebody, it could be a therapist, it could be a Buddhist teacher, it could be someone, a counselor, someone with whom you feel safe, and you establish a relationship where needs can be expressed and that inner voice that's accepting and caring can be implanted. Finally, the practice of mindfulness itself, when we don't have an external presence to help us regulate our emotions, we learn to ourselves turn towards difficult emotions as they arise in the body. And instead of pressing them down as we do normally, repressing, suppressing the physical expression of fear and loneliness and sadness and disappointment and all the difficult emotions. Instead, in mindfulness, we can turn and we can hold them and we can feel into, I hope I'm using that phrase correctly, feel into the emotions rather than get lost in stories or diversions or distractions so that we don't have to feel the body. We don't run away from our bodies anymore. We open because in the body is where the child that was rejected and neglected still resides. And it expresses itself in the body through feeling states that emerge and swell and seek our attention. And instead of pushing them down, we create a holding space. And this arising can feel terrifying. Fear can feel terrifying. Loneliness, despondency, isolation can feel scary. It can feel uncontrollable. And yet it's an experience that needs to be met and held. Finally, we can hold these feelings with a caring awareness. We can send metta to ourselves. May I find true peace and ease. We can turn and be present and re-mother or father the long-neglected, rejected, and shamed needs that have been replaced by a false self. And in this practice, 
a true, authentic self makes its appearance and it finally sees the light of day. So, does that make sense? <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about authenticity versus inauthenticity. Now that you've heard that, just go do it. <laughs> <laughs> this is where meditation comes in. I just wanted to point that out. Uh, I was looking out at you as he was talking, and I, I was seeing in people's faces uh, this process of remembering mother. Did you have that sense as well? Am I making it up? As he was talking about your caregivers, did you have a sense of the mothering that you had, the fathering that you had. Who here has their own children? So, not so many of you. One of the things that happens when you have your own children is that you have a, a real understanding of how difficult it is to bring children up. How demanding children are. How much energy it takes. And as I was looking out at you what I was feeling was a sense of sadness and also anger. It seemed like uh, what needed to be addressed was the issue of blaming. If you have your own children, you see how difficult it is to raise children and it opens a window of compassion for your caregivers. If you haven't yet done that, who here are, is contemplating at some point having children? <laughs> what that usually means is that it, it was not easy being a child in the way that you were brought up. So I'm going to talk mostly about blame and self-blame and uh, what to do about that in relationship to caregivers. Uh, everybody pretty much here have mothers. Anybody <laughs> not have mothers? Not everybody has mothers. Mother figures. Everybody have a father. Some people didn't have fathers. And was there a substitute for the father? Did you simply have one parent trying to do everything? So that's actually a, a tremendously difficult task. Um, How do you think that you uh, learn how to care for a child? You learn uh, how to take care of a child by being a child. If, you, if your caregivers were not particularly skillful, then they didn't instruct you well in how to be a child, and they uh, therefore didn't uh, show you how then to care for a child. How do you think they learned how to take care of a child? What? From their parents. So not at all. Uh, I, I do thank you for that. And I, and I understand that when you don't have uh, parents that were effective as parents, that you look outside for other ways of doing it. And that's a good thing. But one of the things you may notice uh, as you approach this or if you watch other people parenting is it's extremely stressful. And in stress, the mind shuts off its ability to think. And you simply have the things that you know how to do. And so you see so often in... Uh, Parents who even who have a resolve not to be the, the parent that they had uh, just acting in similar ways because they can't think differently and their uh, procedural memory takes over, the things that they learn take over, and you just do it. Later, when the stress is gone, you can see that you've done it just uh, as your family system does it, 
and you re may regret that or try and correct it, but in the moment you don't have a choice. If your parents learned how to care for children from their parents, where did they learn it? From their parents. So where actually are we assigning the blame here? What we're really looking at are family systems of being in the world. They're very stable. They, they transmit generation to generation to generation. Mm -hmm. And it takes enormous energy to change that. I'm really just talking about blaming. One of the things I notice about blaming is that it comes up in relationships to obstacles that we feel. If we're moving ahead with our lives and we come up against an obstacle that prevents us from uh, having what we want, and we can lay the blame to that on the conditioning that we received as children, we tend to be unforgiving about that. The things that we're able to overcome, pretty easy to forgive. The things that we can't, they become much more difficult. Children have a tendency to blame themselves because it's unbearable to imagine that their caregivers aren't competent will not be able to take care of them. And so we also develop this sense of blaming ourselves, taking this on. So from a meditative perspective, the, the way out of this is to begin to see things clearly and to begin to uproot the habit of blaming and self-blaming. Where do you think you learned how to blame and self-blame? From your caregiver. If you use blaming, it's because in the family system you grew up, blaming is one of the tools that you have to regulate emotion. If you use self-blaming, it's because in your family system they use self-blaming as a way of regulating emotion. You use both. You lucked out and your family uses both of them. <laughs> Everybody uh, aware that uh, there is this activity called emotion? <laughs> Anybody not have any of those experiences? <laughs> Some people actually grow up in environments that are so hostile they suppress awareness of all of their emotion and they really don't, moment by moment, have any awareness of emotion. So it's not such an empty question. In meditation practice, what we try to do is see where we're at. Not judging, not leaning away, not leaning toward, not spacing out. Actually coming into our own bodies and seeing where we're at. How do we do this? We talk about what's authentic and what's inauthentic. Do you know? What is your authentic self? How would you know that? Do you remember a time when you couldn't be authentic and you made the decision to be inauthentic? Sometimes it's an obvious thing, sometimes it isn't. We run to our caregiver because something happens in the world and we try to figure that out and they respond to us and model for us what that is and then they teach us how to manage it. This is how we learn what emotion is. This is how we learn to regulate emotion. Do you think that everybody understands love as the same thing? Have you figured that out? Do you think that everybody understands anger as the same thing? Sadness as the same thing? Everybody pretty much has their family understanding of it. Because you turn to your caregiver and you present this unknowable experience and 
your caregiver tells you what that experience is, and they also tell you how to manage it. Do you remember those lessons? They happened young. Mm -hmm. uh, at what age do you think you're fully cooked? <laughs> three. three. Mm. What do you remember before the age of three? Not too much. Usually not much. Maybe not anything. So it's very hard to know how those lessons went with your caregiver. It's hard even to know what the world looked like before you learned those definitions, those meanings, and how, what the world was like before you learned the strategies that you've been using all of these years to regulate your experience. So we need to begin to do that from where we are now. This is what the practice of meditation is largely about, to examine these threads of experience that come up and how they form themselves into the experience of self and the experience of the world. Are you all aware that you have a working model of yourself, how you think about yourself, what you think you're capable of and not capable of, how good-looking you think you are, how not good-looking you think you are, how smart, how not smart. Familiar with these ideas in yourself? Comfortable with them? How do you see the world? When you walk into a room, do you assume that everyone will be delighted to meet you and that you can find the people that are interesting to you and that it will be easy to relate to them, to exchange ideas and to connect to them? Is that how you see the world? So, In the beginning, really, the practice about is about finding out how you experience things, how you see yourself, how you see the world, and then trying to figure out whether or not you experience that clearly or not. Do you see yourself clearly? Do you know what actually interests you, what you actually want, and are you then free to pursue it? So we're talking about two different things here. One is connection, your herd animals, we need to be in relationship with each other. And the reason that we need to be in relationship with each other is that we co-regulate our emotional experiences with each other. It's very difficult to exist in isolation because this piece is missing. We get knocked really off balance emotionally and take a long time and be very painful and difficult to bring yourself back into balance could do it in a few minutes with somebody who you felt secure with. Have you had that experience? You know what I'm talking about? Huh? So, so what you really want to be able to do is get good at this, to be able to attune well. Do you know what attunement is? Do you know how you connect to someone else? So, Everybody here pretty much can attune, I'm attuning. Can you tell I'm attuning to you and I'm attuning to you? How do you know that? You know because you can sense that my focus is placed on you and I can sense that your focus is placed on me and that's the attunement. In fact, as I attune to different people around the room, all of the rest of you can pretty much tell who I'm attuned to. This is a vital activity. What is it that happens when you attune? What do you notice? There's an emotional response to the attunement. If you can't hold that emotional experience, then you won't be able to hold the attunement. If you're not able to hold the attunement, then you won't be able to allow empathy to form between you and someone else. What is empathy? So that's actually what I would think of as the definition of sympathy, so that you understand their feelings. 
there's generally three levels of empathy. The first is empathy for somebody else's physical pain. Have you ever watched somebody stub their toe and then wince a little bit? That automatic response, that's the first. The second level of empathy is to be able to read somebody else, so close to what you were talking about. You see their facial expression, you see their body language, and you understand that that's happiness or that's sadness based on how they present. And the third is what we call a compassionate empathy, where you actually experience in your body the emotional experience of the other person. You feel it in your own body. What we have with empathy in, in terms of evolution is that it's like our lie detector. We compare the physical pre outside presentation with the felt response to them, and if they match, we have a tendency to believe that what they're telling us is true. I would like to point out that this is a highly fallible, unreliable system. <laughs> <laughs> that's why we can be so easily manipulated. So, in Buddhism, we talk about compassion, and really what compassion is, is being able to attune, being able to form this empathetic connection, and then being willing to hold the space. What happens when you connect to somebody who's filled with joy? You're filled with joy. What happens when you connect to somebody who's filled with great suffering? You're filled with great suffering. What is the response often to experiencing someone else's great suffering? Shutting it down. Or trying to cheer them up. Uh, you're feeling really sad, which I find terribly uncomfortable, so I'm going to try and cheer you up so that I can feel better about it. <laughs> Not compassion. Right? <laughs> Just get over it. I don't want to be uncomfortable. <laughs> How does that feel? Have you ever encountered that in someone? How does it feel when somebody actually is able to hold the space and just be with you the way that you are in the moment better? two great skills, when we talk about um, dharma and we talk about the meditation path and we talk relational mindfulness, what we're really talking about is mindfulness of inside and out. Mindfulness of interior and exterior. So mindfulness of our own state, our own condition, our own feeling state, and the mindful connection to other people and their feeling state. This is relational mindfulness, it's really basic dharma, basic Buddhist dharma. When I said earlier, now that you've understood intellectually the difference between inauthentic and authentic expression, just go do it, what is it that prevents you from doing it? the old map. So in some sense, it's hard to know what's authentic and what's inauthentic. So you can't tell the difference. Yeah. Resistance. Huh? Resistance, for lack of a better word. Resistance. And what's the nature of the resistance? Fear. 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 So, fear, what are you afraid of? Not knowing what it's going to be. I know what this feels like. It's the unknown that I don't know, so I'm afraid of What am I if I do this differently? So, a loss of a sense of self. Being rejected. Being rejected, yeah. So, if you're authentic, you'll be rejected. And so, instead of that, Try and understand what they want and try and be that so that they won't reject you. Mm -hmm. 
How well has that been working? <laughs> <laughs> but you're, you're absolutely right. That's what we do. We're afraid that if we present ourselves authentically that they won't want us. So we try and intuit what they want and we try and be that. And actually, not a bad strategy uh, if, if that was all that it was. What, what ends up happening if you do that? You resent them. Yes. So resentment is a kind of anger. You become angry. What are you angry about? become angry at them because they haven't been willing to see you authentically. Of course, you haven't been telling them. <laughs> so, what, what do you do then? Drink. Drink. <laughs> Replace other people with alcohol, drugs, shopping, and any other addictive sex. Yeah. Typically, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Just slows down the process. So that's what we should do. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Typically, what we do is we, we come to the point where we can't stand it anymore and we tell them the truth. Mm. I'll, I'll pretend to be the person that you want me to be long enough until you'll see through that, see the real me, and fall in love with the real me, and then... I can just be who I am. <laughs> How well does that work? <laughs> that one doesn't work that well, if you haven't tried it. <laughs> Usually people say, why have you been lying to me this whole time? <laughs> why have you been manipulating me this whole time? The anger of being inauthentic turns into contempt for the other person. Do you know what contempt is? You're moral creatures. Are you aware that you have a barometer of other people's behaviors? And if they, they act in a way that you believe is immoral, you feel the sense of outrage. You know what I'm talking about? Somebody knocks you speeding through... Uh, almost hits you with their car, you have a sense of moral outrage at them not thinking and caring about you as a whole human being. You're inauthentic, the inauthenticity turns into contempt for them, that they would allow you to be inauthentic in the relationship. And then the relationship explodes. What is it that you need to be able to sit with in order to be authentic then? Fear. Fear. Hmm? You need really to be abandoned. You need to be able to hold the experience of being abandoned. I like to say, in order to be authentic, you need to be willing to be abandoned. In order to be completely authentic, you need to be willing to be completely abandoned. Mm. What do you have to do to be abandoned? What do you have to be able to do? You need to be able to hold an intense emotional experience. How good are you, how good are you at holding intense emotional experience? That's a question. To the degree that you're able to hold intense emotional experiences, the degree to which really you'll be able to be authentic. And this is why we talk about understanding not being that useful. You can understand the need to be authentic, you can understand the advantages of being authentic, but if you can't hold the experience of being abandoned, you won't be able to be authentic. And you'll be stuck in this place of suffering. So again, here's where the practice comes in. Because you can work with meditation to develop a strong equanimity practice around holding intense emotion. And as that uh, skill increases and you're able to 
hold greater and greater emotional intensity, you'll be able to be more and more authentic. What will happen if you're more authentic? That will typically happen. But more importantly, people who really like that will come forward. Put out an authentic expression of yourself, and the people who really like that will come forward. You still have to be picky. <laughs> okay? Doesn't mean everybody who comes forward is somebody you're going to want. But they'll come forward, and they'll like your authentic expression, and then you can just be that. You don't have to pretend. But if you dissolve that experience of abandonment terror, what's likely to happen? I wish that were the case, <laughs> really. What's likely to happen is that you're going to be hit with a wave of sadness, but it's related to the losses of the child that have not been held, not been expressed. So kind of like a double whammy. I like to call it the earthquake of abandonment terror and the tsunami of sadness. <laughs> the reason I point this out is that the rewards of being authentic are immeasurable and the skill that it requires if you haven't learned it as a child. If you had caregivers who were very happy with who you are and were very nurturing of who you are, then to be authentic is pretty much effortless. It's how you've always been. There's never been a problem with it. If you had caregivers who wanted someone else or who weren't able to care for you in a, in a secure way, then you're going to have some degree of this activity around how you present yourself, how you let people know who you really are. And you're going to have this sadness which I speak about. So you move in little ways, little by little, pushing in the direction of authenticity, and the rewards are immeasurable. Life is rich. You develop intimate emotional connections to other people that serve as this balancing experience so that you can move really through the difficulties of life. Life is going to be difficult in an easy way, in balance. And if you don't have that, it's really difficult. Mostly what I rely on to develop these things is a meditation practice. You work in emotion, you work in releasing the old stuff, you develop the skill of equanimity to hold the experience of the present moment. And so doing that, you free yourself. So. How much do you think you need to practice in order for this to happen? Mm -hmm. <laughs> that would be good. You could do two hours. Maybe uh, a half hour a day would be enough. Maybe an hour a day would be enough. It really depends what you have to do. Everybody's conditioning is different. What do you have to do in order to be able to hold the present moment without wanting something different, without not wanting what is, without just spacing out altogether. Um, I think we're pretty much close to time. It's, it's totally doable. And I think that you should hear that. It's totally doable. It is a, a way of retraining the mind out of the old skills that you learned. Not all of the skills that you learned are going to be bad. Some of them are going to be useful. You want to keep those. 
you want to be able to recognize the ones that aren't skillful. You want to replace them with things that are more skillful. This is all simply the practice of meditation, both the formal practice on the cushion and also as a practice in life. Anyway, time has uh, run out. Well, I thank you for joining us. I hope that there was something of value. If you'd like to read more about some of the themes that George and I were discussing, especially towards the end, being able to sit through the arising experiences of abandonment, I definitely would suggest a book called The Drama of the Gifted Child by Alice Miller, which talks a lot about that theme, as well as quite a number of other books that we mentioned by Kohut, Bowlby, Mary Main, and D.W. Winnicott. Uh, I hope you got something from this. I thank you for participating and your listening and showing up. Uh, if you can contribute to keep us in this space and continuing with Dharma Punks, I'd be very grateful. And until I see you again, thank you. <laughs>